Special thanks to Noah, News Over Audio, for sponsoring this episode. Noah is an audio app that allows you to listen to articles from premium publishers like The Economist, Bloomberg, and many more. Check out the link in the episode description for three months free of Noah Premium. Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Some say that artificial intelligence will trigger the fourth industrial revolution, upending traditional ways of living and doing business. This week, we look at how an AI and big data arms race might change investing and the implications for markets and returns. I want to know the effect on our investment decisions and portfolios and whether we should welcome our new robot overlords. And in today's dumb question of the week, we ask, why is it so hard to beat the market? Okay, let's get into it. So, Romin, on the face of it, I would have thought the stock market and markets in general are the perfect field for AI to solve. It's masses and masses of data. It's complex systems where all the variables don't clearly relate to the outcomes. And the market itself has fixed rules. That's all the things AI likes, is it not? That's kind of true. But remember that AI is particularly good at doing things where there's a very restricted domain. If you have to specify how to do something like play chess, that's something that you can teach an AI to do very well. And we've already got systems which are better than humans. We've had that since the 90s in chess. Well, I think recently they've got much better. And I think those kind of domains, you can't just take an AI system, throw it at a problem and get it to solve it. You need a huge team of AI researchers to tweak it for that particular task. That's the way it works at the moment. And they have achieved astonishing things, things like working out the structure of a protein from its sequence of amino acids. The protein folding problem, that's incredible that they've solved. Well, not solved, but certainly got a long way with that. But things like markets are much, much harder. And the reason for that is that let's say that you do find a pattern in markets. Okay, so you've thrown data at the problem, the machine's found a pattern and you start trading it. Well, there's a problem called alpha decay, which is that the minute that you start exploiting it, other people might notice the same thing. Because all of the hedge funds which are throwing AI at this problem will probably have similar data sets and they'll have similar quants, which will come up with similar patterns. So once they start to exploit that market irregularity, the extra outperformance that you get from it starts to fade. I mean, that makes sense. It's kind of like the problem is it's a competitive market, right? Whereas with protein folding, the proteins aren't going, oh, no, they've solved how we're folding. Let's fold some other way. Right? <laughs> They're not doing that. Well, I remember in physics, it was funny. They used to say that, you know, we've found all the particles and there was a kind of slowdown in the discovery of the rate of new particles. And some people were joking that it was like God kind of considering, you know, maybe I should make up some new stuff, you know? Yeah, well, that's the problem here, right? <laughs> yeah, and that is actually the problem with markets, which is that... There is no kind of solution which works forever. You have to keep on updating the models and the predictions in a real-time basis. And then the problem becomes, well, how do you find an algorithm which works generally? And it's kind of like the problem of finding a fund manager. Have you found a method for finding methods to trade? <laughs> and will it continue to be effective in the future? So it's the same problem, really, as finding an active fund manager. How do you assess whether it's a good strategy for finding strategies? But I'm guessing in principle, it's not impossible to conceive of an AI that could beat the market consistently, so long as you could keep its workings secret and whatever's generating its edge secret. 
Yeah, as long as it can exploit a very deep market. So if it's a very liquid market, like a futures market, rather than a very illiquid market where a bond trades, you know, once every week. And if you trade that bond, everyone's going to be able to see it. As long as it's a liquid market, which you can trade in an anonymous fashion, that should be fine. So I guess it's kind of like in the Second World War, when the British cracked the Enigma code of the Germans and could kind of see where all their ships and supply routes were going. But they couldn't immediately, you know, just start sinking all their ships all over the place, could they? Or stop their own ships being sunk, because the Germans would immediately know that they'd cracked the code. So you have to be a little bit cagey about it. But there are standard ways for hedge funds to do that. For example, with their prime broker, which is an investment bank, they could actually trade via swaps. And so it looks like the investment bank's doing the trade, not the hedge fund. So maybe someone has already beaten the market and we just don't know about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is quite possible. And I think there are probably strategies out there which are working right now. But, you know, I'd be willing to bet that they wouldn't be working in a year's time. Because markets change all the time. I mean, just look at what's happened over the last two years. We had a huge pandemic. We had the economy switched off and switch on again. And we've gone from pretty low inflation for two decades to crazily high inflation. You know, that's a bizarre change in the status of the economy. And a machine that was tuned to work during that kind of moderate period just wouldn't work now. So I think whatever it is that's going to work, if something's going to work, it has to be hugely adaptable. Should we clarify what we mean by AI? Because it's one of those things where I don't think anyone really agrees on the definition. Yeah, I mean, the latest developments in AI are kind of interesting. I mean, I was kind of involved in it when I was at Oxford, when I was a postdoc. You know, I was working with neural networks, which would look at how kids learn language and model it. And we used very simple things called perceptrons. You know, they create these kind of things like neurons. You present it with language examples, and it learns from the examples. And it's kind of cute because it makes the same mistakes as babies. It over-regularizes the inflection of past tense, for example. I'm trying to learn German right now, and I'm making way more mistakes than my daughter learning it, I tell you. (laughs) (laughs) You need a neural net for my brain, please. But it's interesting, you know, little kids, they say things like, I wented. Yeah, it's because language actually makes no sense when you think about it. All the rules are, like, really arbitrary and then (laughs) don't apply in, like, 25% of the cases. But it's interesting because it becomes more regular over time. So, for example, if you look at Chinese, it's got very few exceptions. But if you look at newly minted languages, then there are more exceptions. But anyway, I think the point is that with these neural networks, you could kind of model what humans did. But the idea behind artificial intelligence is that it's essentially a program which can mimic intelligence of some form. But it comes in many different flavours. I mean, some of it's just pattern recognition, where you show it lots of data And in an unsupervised way, it starts to pick out patterns in the data. Some of it's decision-making. So, for example, you have to make decisions in an uncertain environment. And that's the kind of trading systems we're talking about. But you can do it in various ways. You can do it with a neural network. The trouble with that is it's very opaque. It's hard to work out how the system's done it once it solves a problem, which itself is a problem. Because if you have to kind of explain to your investors, this is how it works. If you've got no clue how it works, then... Yeah, that's a problem. That's called the black box problem, right? Yeah. And I think many of the systems become so complex, even if it's a rule set, just taking all of the rules apart and trying to work out how it works can be very time consuming. And I guess that brings loads of other problems as well, because how can you be sure if you've got this magical black box, which seems to be beating the market, 
One, how can you be sure that that's going to continue? But also, how can you be sure it's not breaking the law? It's not got a secret way of insider trading or manipulating the market. And then you're going to go to jail, not the machine. (laughs) I guess you kind of restrict what it can and can't do. So I think the kind of legal problem is one that's not going to be a problem. I don't know about that. Another way to approach it, interestingly, is to present it with novel data. So a lot of hedge funds spend a lot of money buying data which is outside the kind of realm of normal financial market data. It's not just looking at balance sheets and stock prices. It's looking at things like footfall inside the shops. So you have camera feeds which look at how many people are coming into the shop or satellites monitoring how many lights are being switched on in China to give you a read on how much actual growth there is. Or you have people standing outside factories counting the number of trucks coming in and out to figure out you know, exactly how much stuff they're producing. So all of this stuff is really valuable to hedge funds. So there are companies which specialise in creating this value-add data, alternative data sets. And I know another thing that they do is a lot of natural language processing, where, for example, they look at the transcripts of executive calls and interviews and conferences, and then try to use machine learning to gauge whether the executives are confident whether they're being evasive or vague or refusing to answer questions, and then mapping that to whether a company is going to do well or not in the future. And it sounds difficult, but maybe there's clues there. And certainly sentiment. And I think looking at the internet for sentiment about what people say about a stock, there AI could do it fairly well, because a lot of that is text-based. So you can hoover up lots of Twitter feeds, for example, and then simply look for words which are emotive in conjunction with that stock. So there, you know, you can do natural language processing. And I think there probably could be an interesting thing to be done there, which many companies are already doing, of course. Yeah, we've mentioned before the Buzz ETF, the ticker is B-U-Z-Z, which does exactly that. I think it looks for the 75 companies in America with the best or the most positive sentiment analysis on things like Twitter. (laughs) It's searching that cesspool for the nuggets. (laughs) (laughs) But I remember a company doing this two decades ago. I think they were based out of UCL, University College London. This isn't new. But I think the difficulty, again, is let's say that there's a lot of positive buzz about a company. Is that necessarily going to mean it outperforms? Because it might be that the people who are actually saying positive things are lying. So it could be a pump and dump scheme where you buy a stock, pump up a stock, and then sell it at the top just before everybody else sells. Or it could be the fact that, you know, those people aren't very influential. You know, they're not big traders. They talk a lot on Twitter, but they're not institutional investors, which could really move the price. So I think those are the caveats. And it may not be predictive. You know, that might be the kind of long and short of it. Yeah. You know, even if there's positive buzz on Twitter, it doesn't mean the stock price is going up or down. And that market sentiment is much more important. So I guess in the broad sense, what they're looking for with all these alternative data sets is a proxy for the information that a company would have on the inside, right? The company knows, presumably, within a certain margin of error, what its performance is going to be in a year's time. And we're trying to find ways of gauging that without doing anything illegal. (laughs) Well, you'd have thought so. But in fact, if you look at insider dealing, the directors of a company have to declare their trades for regulatory reasons. And if you actually track that, it's a very poor predictor of performance. Usually it's to do with what signal they're trying to send out about the company. You know, they'll say, oh, look, if we buy shares, it'll look like it's a positive thing. So they buy shares when the company's not doing so well, just to try <laughs> trick everyone. 
that's just as likely. Or maybe they need the money. Maybe they want to buy a house or something and they just need to sell some shares. So insider dealing, well, deals by insiders, I should say, isn't necessarily a very predictive thing. So even the company employees, even the CEO doesn't know how well he's going to be doing in two years' time, I don't think. But as you said earlier, asset managers and hedge funds, they are really leaning into AI. So there was a Barclay Hedge survey done a few years ago now, in 2018, which showed that even at that time, the majority of hedge funds were using AI and machine learning and investing in proprietary strategies to try and outperform. And they asked all these hedge funds, so what are you actually using AI for? 67% said for idea generation. So yeah, getting it to look at the market and say, oh, have you thought about investing in this company? And then they'd leave it up to the humans to actually decide whether to do it or not. Or I've noticed that Brazilian energy companies are doing very well this week. Yeah, exactly. That kind of thing. And then the second biggest use case was portfolio construction. It was also being used for trade execution and risk management, actually. It's a big part of what they're using AI for, to try and spot errors and these big tail risks that could take down large parts of a portfolio in one go. I think that's interesting, you know, the risk management aspect. I mean, because a lot of investment banks and hedge funds have a lot of staff in risk management, right? And it's one way, I guess, of saving costs if you can come up with an AI or an algorithm which just does exactly what that massive team of people does and can't be sort of bribed, <laughs> then you uh, are surely going to you know, have lower costs, lower fees and presumably better risk management. Well, one of the things that you want to look out for, for example, is rogue traders. So you look out for a suspicious trade. It's not as easy as you'd think. And it is a big operational risk for investment banks, hedge funds. So I think that's one kind of approach which might be interesting. Because normal retail banks use AI to try and spot fraud, you know, when someone's nicked your card and is buying 50,000 MacBooks. So it's the kind of investment bank equivalent of that, right? Trying to spot the trader who's off there taking on ridiculous leverage and betting on some penny stock. It's harder to do now. I think you have to be a little bit creative when it comes to doing dodgy trades because risk management is a real issue for the trading desk. There are really strict limits according to how much risk you can take. And if they take too much risk, the risk department has ultimate control. They are the kind of managers of the bank in a way. But the way that works is every desk has a kind of risk allocation. And if you exceed it, then you get hit with a stick. <laughs> they got big sticks, don't they, in the risk department? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you know, everyone jokes about them stopping them doing business because, you know, all my trades are profitable, you know, don't try and stop me doing business. I'm an artist. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the kind of pattern recognition could be interesting from the fraud point of view. But you still need the kind of risk department to work out things like value at risk, you know, how much risk is actually in this trading book and, you know, how can we reduce it? Because that's what I think AI will be more used for in the industry. Like we've said, is it going to be able to, you know, be magic, this sort of crystal ball that beats the market? Probably not for all the reasons we've said. But, you know, it could solve domain-specific problems, like you said earlier. If you restrict it enough to, let's make the best automated risk management system we can for the bank, yeah, maybe it can do that. And I think it's already playing a big role in that. Or, you know, maybe we can build an AI platform which allows things like custom indexing, and then we can sell it as a service to lots of different people. So it can become a profit center in itself. And I think people would buy it. So I know a lot of the big asset managers are trying to do huge amounts of stuff in AI. So BlackRock, biggest asset manager on the planet, in 2018 established its AI Labs, which is publishing all sorts of research and trying to create proprietary algorithms for BlackRock. 
Man Group, which is a big hedge fund partnered with Oxford University, your old stomping grounds, and made the Oxford Man Institute of Quantitative Finance. And they put out a huge amount of research and have kind of transitioned over the past decade or two, almost all their funds to being algorithmically and AI driven. But I think you get a lot of this via just having a momentum strategy. You just look at what's going up and you buy it. But there are many, many different quant strategies. Just in the same way as hedge fund doesn't really mean anything. There are so many different hedge fund strategies that it's difficult to group them as one thing. Similarly, with quant trading, it's very difficult to group everything into one category. But for example, Man Group uh, were famous for having their managed future strategies, which essentially just look at trends and then buy them via the futures market. And they go long and short. So in a falling market, they go short. In a rising market, they go long. And of course, they can track multiple different assets via the futures market, commodities, equity, FX, rates, you know, they can do all of it via the futures. And then, you know, they can make really good, strong returns in periods when markets are turning south, because they can go short as easily as long. We've seen that this year, haven't we? Managed futures are one of the few asset classes, if you want to put it that way, that have had positive and in some cases, very positive returns, despite the market being down 20 plus percent. Yeah, they kind of lagged during the very strong rally that we saw after the pandemic. So mid-March 2020, up to the kind of peak at the end of 2021, they underperformed the S&P significantly. But then the minute the S&P turned south at the beginning of 2022, they had a big fall because they were long the market and the market turned south and they were positioned the wrong way. But then they started to hugely pick up on their returns because they could go short. And they've done very well until the middle of this year. I mean, they're always pitched as tail risk hedges, aren't they? Sort of a small part of your portfolio, which will try and balance out your equity allocation. Yeah, so they generally underperform in an up market and they outperform in a down market because they can go short and they can switch either way. So the hedge doesn't necessarily have to hurt you in a rising market. That's the idea. But the really toxic environment for something like a managed futures hedge fund or indeed a quant fund is a market which kind of whipsaws up and down because if there is no trend, then trend following clearly isn't going to work very well. (laughs) And this is the problem as well now, which is that we've kind of ended the period where we had cheap money. We're kind of entering a new period where we've got rising interest rates. So you can make money off that. And then you can do the FX thing because interest rate differentials drive FX. So we've seen the dollar strengthen. But the question is, what's next? There isn't a really clear trend appearing, I don't think. Just bad news is the trend, Roman. (laughs) It does seem to be, doesn't it? You just think, what's next in 2022? It's just one thing after another. Artificial intelligence is progressing at remarkable speed, and it's not always easy to stay on top of the latest developments. One of the resources we use to prepare for this discussion is NOAA, News Over Audio, who are kindly sponsoring this episode. NOAA is an audio app that gives you quality, in-depth analysis and opinion from multiple perspectives. Their dedicated team of expert editors handpick the best articles to bring you the story behind the news. NOAA curates articles from premium publishers like The Economist, Bloomberg and The Washington Post into dedicated series that guide listeners through the story. In fact, to research this podcast, we listened to the series How AI Could Change Investing, which gives an interesting insight into how the technology is being used across the industry. NOAA is available on mobile, desktop, smart speakers, and in your car, so you can listen wherever you are. Thanks again to NOAA, which is available for $7.99 a month. And if you look in the episode description, you'll find an exclusive link to access three months free of NOAA Premium. The offer is valid for the next three days, so do check it out. 
kind of interesting if we step back for a second and we think, what are we actually doing all this AI stuff in finance for, right? <laughs> Presumably it's to have more efficient capital allocation. I know on an individual level, it's to try and beat the market, but surely as a society, we want all that talent around data science and computer programming to be in the tech and engineering sectors and generating the innovations which will improve our lives rather than just messing around with these black box hedge funds shoveling money around or not. No, I agree. I think that's absolutely true. Things like the protein folding problem, cracking that was incredible. And I think that'll have huge impacts later on with drug discovery, that kind of thing. Certainly taking some of that pool of talent and trying to use it to generate money in a kind of zero sum game, which after all is what it is, right? I mean, I can see a future in which you've just got markets in which you've got computers at one quant fund trading against computers at another quant fund. that's the kind of weird dystopia that you might see. Yeah, it's the AI chess tournament. But I mean, some of the things that the hedge funds try to do are based on speed. And there they really do have an edge because they can trade in milliseconds, whereas humans can't. So certain arbitrage trades, they can do really quickly. So for example, the futures markets are in Chicago, the spot markets are in New York. So just getting information from one place to the other, the speed of that is limited by the speed of light. So if you can have a fiber optic network connecting the two, you've got an edge. And if your computers are sitting really close to that fiber optic feed, then again, you have an edge because it'll take a few more milliseconds to get to the next hedge fund who's further away. So that's one way to win is to do this really fast stuff. And we could have a market in which all of that fast stuff happens and the people like you and I, Michael, who just trade indices and just leave it for decades, we wouldn't care. We could coexist but on completely different timescales. Yeah, there was a great book by Michael Lewis who wrote The Big Short, and his other book was called Flash Boys, which looked at exactly this industry, which is high-frequency traders, and how they would literally build these cables through mountains to hook up, I think it was Chicago and New York exchanges or something like that, because even digging this tunnel for tens of millions of dollars was worth it in a very short amount of time because, you know, they can front-run all the trades. And if you can be the person that does the scalping between, you know, the futures contract and the spot market, well, it's kind of free money. But this is where I think regulation has a role to play, because for an economy, it really doesn't bring any benefit for trades to happen two milliseconds faster and for the person who built a tunnel to (laughs) make extra money. Like that has no tangible benefit for anyone except the people who've dug a tunnel, right? So regulation should really be there to sort of level the playing field somehow, no? Well... Or you think it's all fair game? Well, that one I think is fair enough because that's an arbitrage trade. So just bringing the futures in line with the spot market, which actually is pretty useful, I think. But they were already being brought in line just two milliseconds later. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But look, I wouldn't have any issues with that. As long as they're not eating my lunch, I think that's fine. I think the problem is that you do get examples where if there's a lot of trading activity by hedge funds and by quant funds in a particular stock, then it can start to affect pricing. So I think there it it is a problem because they will start eating other people's lunch. And they got blamed, I think rightly, for the flash crashes we've seen back in the early 2010s. And it's interesting. I mean, these these quant funds, people build up assets under management in a kind of benign market, and then you get a market dislocation, and a lot of them blow up. 2007 was a nice example. And the problem is that all of the strategies start to converge, because if the algorithms are doing the same thing, then effectively, when the market turns against them, 
everything will turn south very quickly and they'll blow up, particularly if they've got leverage. I mean, I do worry that we've sort of allowed a world where new systemic risks are hidden below the surface. Like you say, these algorithms and AIs that are doing high-frequency trading far faster than we can conceive might all pile into the same thing at the same time and just really heighten contagion risks in an emergency. So, for example, the global financial crisis, it probably was made worse by unwinding of trades by quant funds. There was a Goldman fund, which was kind of notorious at the time, which was called Global Equity Opportunities. And that lost 23% in August of 2007, just in one month, even though it had been doing really well up to that point. And there was an interesting report that was done by Goldman afterwards, which was a kind of post-mortem. And there's a kind of interesting phrase which they came up with. They said, uh, longer term successful quant managers will have to rely more on unique factors. <laughs> right. In other words, don't copy what everyone else is doing. <laughs> but the thing is, you never know what everyone else is doing. And so it's very difficult to generate a new idea with these systems because you don't know what the other trades are out there. There was an interesting paper, actually, which I had a quick glance at, which said that. When you've got multiple different AIs running in one financial market, they sort of collude over time. They kind of work out that there's other AIs potentially doing the same pricing and they kind of price fix to make more profit in aggregate, <laughs> which I thought was fascinating. And you could see that. And that's why I said earlier about market manipulation being a potential legal issue. If you don't exactly know what your black box is doing, it might be colluding with the black box on the other side of town. Yeah, I guess it could spot a pattern, which is what the other quant funds are doing, and then ride that wave of activity. It's possible. But these things always unwind, and that's the problem, and it can be very disruptive when it does happen, particularly if they have large amounts of capital under management. And that's the real worry, which is that it sucks in a huge amount of capital and you know destabilises markets. So as retail investors, what do we actually want from AI? Are there tasks it can do for us for getting all this hedge fund nonsense where, you know, we think, yeah, I would like AI to solve this specific problem for me? There are certain questions, things like rebalancing your portfolio. What's the best way to do it? And can I get something else to do it so I don't have to because it's quite tedious? You know, I know roughly what I want to buy, but I don't necessarily know the best times to do the rebalancing. If it could help with that, it would be useful, I think. But it would be mostly these kind of tedious tasks, which would probably benefit from automation. I think the direct indexing or the custom indexing idea is an interesting one. So let's say the core holding in a portfolio is the S&P 500 fund. Maybe you want to tilt it in a certain direction based on your ethics. So you want to exclude certain companies that aren't just a standard ESG filter, but you know you have specific views. So ESG, but I like nuclear power. That's your one, I know. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> or maybe it's something completely bespoke, like I work at Apple, therefore I have a lot of risk and stock options in Apple already. I don't want Apple in my S&P 500 fund. And I don't want competitors of Apple because I do believe in Apple. So, you know, you could like exclude certain sectors, not just sectors, though, but like really specific companies and get the AI to build you this custom fund with auto rebalancing and keeping it in line with the broad market, for example. Yeah, that's a good example. And it's kind of like personalized medicine where, you know, you've got your own genome, you know what the risks are for you as a person, and you can have treatment, which is almost predictive in the sense that it avoids problems before they happen. So you could have a similar thing with portfolio building. But I think the difficulty would be if it was too complex. You know, if it is a kind of black box and it comes up with some kind of crazy portfolio which takes too much risk, 
that would be a problem. So you'd have to have strict constraints in terms of what it can do, what it could buy. And how much it could vary from the broad market. Yeah, I mean, you'd have to have some kind of position limits and how much of an active position it could take. Because I don't want to be too much of a dinosaur and think, oh, index funds came in in the 70s, revolutionized everything over time. And it's always going to be the best strategy forever, no matter what happens. Like maybe something will come along which will displace the sort of boring index funds eventually. And it could be this kind of AI driven approach, especially to risk where we're looking to invest across multiple asset classes as they move over time. Yeah, I think there's a kind of trend, a long term trend, which is that equity has historically outperformed every other asset class. And I'd be worried that if there was some kind of new algorithm which came up with something which was supposedly better, that once it was back tested, that outperformance would immediately disappear. I mean, what's weird about the equity outperformance thing is that everybody knows it. You know, anyone who watches my YouTube channel would know it. That is everybody. <laughs> but it doesn't go away. It doesn't go away. It's been there for over a century and it's still there. And it's because earnings carry on growing pretty well and they've continued doing so. That's all it takes, really. Whereas there's a nice paper I found, which was to do with back-tested strategies. The minute they're published, they start underperforming by a lot. And what's interesting is the more they outperformed during the back-tests, the more they underperform once the strategy's published. Interesting. What's the mechanism behind that? So it looks great. We're making money. We're beating the market. The paper's published. And now we immediately start losing money with the same strategy. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's exactly how it works. So it was to do with equities. And these were equity strategies, single stock strategies. And generally, these very outperforming portfolios were highly concentrated in fairly low liquidity stocks. Those are the ones which tend to do well, for example. And then the minute the thing's published, then you get the underperformance. Okay, but now everyone knows about this publishing and underperformance <laughs> trend. If we're a sneaky academic, we get the paper together. We say, this is a trend that outperforms. We know when we're going to publish it. We go short this trend. The day before we publish, boom, I'm a rich academic and I can sail off into the Bahamas. Well, no, Michael, because now you've said that and this podcast is going out that alpha's going away as well. <laughs> yeah, there's no way to win. <laughs> but I guess the point is that, you know, there is no kind of easy alpha and there is no kind of persistent alpha. So whatever the strategy would be, if there was some kind of direct indexing AI, then it would have to be an ever-changing thing. I think the place where AI might be useful for the broad population when it comes to finance and investing, rather than the nerds that listen to us, is that most people don't invest for a start because they're scared of it. And there's a lot of capital just sitting in savings accounts doing nothing. And the, I think the reason is financial advice, professional financial advice is so expensive. It's out of the reach of most people. If you could get these robo advisors to get to a standard where people are comfortable using them for cheap fees then yeah, it's not as good as managing your investments yourself because the fees are higher, but maybe it'll stop people making mistakes and just get started, right? Yeah, there was an interesting company which I interviewed the CEO for the UK. It was called Scalable Capital. And guess what happened? It underperformed. <laughs> yeah, it might underperform an index fund, but it might outperform your money just sitting in a savings account, right? <laughs> so Yeah, I, th I think it can help in that sense. Because some people don't want to have any kind of dealings with their investments. But generally, the way AI works at the moment for wealth management, for these robo-advisors, is not to do the actual investment side of it. 
is to do the mapping of a person's risk appetite to a portfolio. And they've got standard off-the-shelf portfolios, usually created by a team of humans, yeah. which then they get mapped onto. It gives you a questionnaire to begin with, which tries to tease out your approach to risk and your life stages and your goals. And then it says, okay, here's 60-40 equity portfolio, enjoy yeah. it. <laughs> we'll take 1%. Well, you know, 20-80, 40-60, yeah. and so on. Yeah, so it'll map you onto one of those. I mean, it's not really AI, is it? No. But maybe it could become more interesting and useful over time. But that's why scalable capital was interesting, because it did lots of active trades in order to keep the risk of the portfolio constant. So you choose a risk level, and then it went off and generated trades. But what was interesting was talking to the CEO. He was saying that he saw it more of a kind of service which would look at all of your lifestyle and then trade based on that lifestyle, such that it would produce the best possible portfolio for you on an ongoing basis. So it's a service, a process, rather than a kind of standard portfolio that it would produce which I thought was really interesting. I mean, it's kind of in the same ballpark as what I said about, you know, if you worked for Apple earlier and you wanted a portfolio that underweighted Apple. Yeah, but this thing would know everything about you, right? So it would be able to see your current account and see what you spend money on and use all of that information to build the portfolio. Yeah, the first people through the door are the guinea pigs, right? Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, I was. <laughs> right. So scalable capital still exists, but it's come back. And I think it just works in Germany and Europe at the moment. So it closed down its UK operations, so I couldn't invest in it anyway anymore. I mean, I do quite like seeing all this innovation, even if, you know, they're underperforming to begin with. The one I came across, which was really unusual, was a company called NumaI, or Numa AI, which is kind of like a hedge fund that's doing decentralized quant investing via a tournament of anonymous data scientists. Now, that just sounds like a load of buzzwords thrown out there, but it's kind of the only description I could come up with. So it seems as if what they do is they get a bunch of data scientists, they provide them with a kind of cleaned, nice data set, they give them the market returns as well, and they say, right, off you go, you come up with some strategies, you stake your own cryptocurrency against them, and then if you win, if you have the best strategy, you get a certain payoff, and you get paid in this cryptocurrency. Yeah, it is interesting. They're running this competition. And it's not that they go out and source data scientists. I think anyone can apply, right? And yeah, you get this data, you build your magical model, you stake your money. And then if you underperform or don't perform, people can sort of destroy your stake, right? So it is this competitive Darwinian process, Yeah, which is interesting. Maybe it should do well. I don't know if it has. Probably not. <laughs> well, they've actually tracked its returns. They publish it. It's all transparent in that sense. So AI gets the benefits of the trades up front. So obviously that's why they're doing it. But they also publish the actual strategies online in a blockchain. So you can actually see what those are. But they've actually published the returns for their fund. And, you know, if you track it since it was first conceived, this is in September 2019, it's underperforming the S&P 500, even after the big sell-offs in 2022. But what's different about it is that it doesn't have huge swings. It is a kind of steady upward increase, certainly over this period of time. Yeah, on a risk-adjusted basis, it looks like it's outperforming to me. Yeah, it does. And it's not very volatile. At least they publish monthly data, so it would be hard to see if they were. But the S&P's ahead of it at the moment. So the S&P's up 32%. It's up 26 since September 2019. But I think it has this kind of really important quality, which is that it will, by definition, be an ever-changing strategy, which it implements. That's a strength as well as a weakness, of course, because you never know whether that's going to carry on working. 
It's trying to harness the wisdom of the crowds phenomenon. Yeah, and certainly in artificial intelligence, this is a well-established fact that if you have a, it's called a committee of experts, you can actually outperform a single expert system. So if you have like 100 people who are good at something and you take their combined forecasts, it's usually better. They average their guesses. Yeah, but weighted based on their past performance, perhaps, that does tend to perform well. Interesting. I'll keep an eye on this one because if there's a way of outperforming that beats an index fund, I think it would be something like this. It would be this harnessing of all the expert advice into one great ever-moving strategy. But the question is, is it going to blow up at some point? Is there going to be something about it which becomes unstable? It's probably the cryptocurrency underpinning it all, which is another thing. Yeah, I was looking at that, actually. The actual cryptocurrency is published like any other cryptocurrency, the price of it. It's called NMR. That's the name of the token, Numeraire. And it peaked at $90 in April 2021. And like every other cryptocurrency at the moment, it's fallen hugely. So it's currently worth about $18. So it's fallen fivefold. Yeah. I don't know why it has to be done through crypto. I'd be quite happy if it wasn't. I think the actual people that are involved would also be happy if it wasn't. But yeah. <laughs> Pay me in dollars. Cold hard cash. <laughs> Give me real money. If I'm giving you my strategies, my like market beating strategies, a hedge fund would pay me billions for that. You bet that the hedge fund cares about the dollars rather than the cryptocurrency. At PensionCraft, we always try to promote the idea of using objective measures and quantitative measures to look at what strategies work best. So if you want to learn more about investing and join our community, just go to pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is maybe the most popular dumb question in investing, which is, why is it so hard to beat the market? Surely it should be easy, right? There's some companies which you look at and you go, come on, Roman, they are crap. Let's just not invest in them, invest in everything else, and we're going to outperform. Why isn't it possible? The problem, I think, is that unless you've got inside information, everybody else sees what you see. If there's a penny on the pavement, then somebody's going to pick it up before you. So I think that's the problem. Everybody sees the same data, and if there is an inefficiency in the market, other people will probably get to it before you do. So that's one reason, then. Markets are broadly efficient. Yeah, not exactly efficient, but pretty efficient. Yeah, more efficient than we can be trading in our bedrooms. Yeah. There's another fact about the market, which I think is a big reason it's hard to outperform, which is that the distribution of returns is skewed. A large part of the returns come from just a few of the stocks. And you can kind of say that the mean stock return, the average, if you like, is far higher than the median. So if you're just trying to choose select stocks, you're most likely to pick stocks that are underperforming the market. So for a 20-year period from 1999 to 2019, only 26% of the stocks in the S&P 500 outperformed the average. So, you know, the odds are against you, whatever you think. And choosing those stocks a priori before they actually do their outperforming thing is very difficult. And if you just randomly pick, like you say, it's just not going to work. And there was another study which was done by Hendrik Bessenbinder who's a finance professor at Arizona State University. And the fact that comes out of this study is just fantastic to me and kind of sums the whole thing up. So he looked at the stock market returns in the US from 1926 to the present day. And he found that the best performing 4% of listed companies explain the entirety of the net gain for the US stock market since 1926. So the other 96% of stocks on average did no better than just your basic treasury bills. 
<laughs> which is incredible. 4%. <laughs> so that really shows you that the needle in a haystack really is a good analogy. And what was interesting about that paper was that active fund managers took it to mean, oh, well, it's active managers that you have to pay to find those stocks. Yeah. Whereas passive people took it to mean they're very unlikely to find those stocks. Yeah, by the haystack, as Jack Bogle always said. And I think, you know, people just use it to justify their priors. So it kind of proves that stock picking is incredibly difficult. I'm not saying it's 100% impossible, but extremely difficult, right? But the other way people think they can beat the market is by timing the market. So sort of dancing in and out of the S&P 500, say based on their views of macroeconomics, for example. Is that going to do any better? Well, you just look at macro hedge funds and, you know, they charge huge fees. And yet a lot of the time they fail as well. You know, if you take leverage bets with other people's money, then eventually you're going to win big at some point. But (laughs) having to do that consistently over time, very, very, very few of them have done that. I think I can just name one hedge fund which has managed to do very well historically. And maybe they're just lucky and not good. It's possible. I think market timing is a difficult one because it also involves emotion. And when you're scared, it's more likely to be emotion which drives your trades and your decisions than a kind of rational decision about whether things are fairly priced. Yeah. And so I take the example of now, right? As you said earlier, we're in a kind of regime shift. What's the next regime going to be? Is it going to be positive for stocks or negative for stocks? Who knows? I can see both the upside and the downside from here. But the news is bad. Like if we just listen to the news, we'd say, okay, I'm going short the market or I'm just pulling my money out despite the high inflation is seeing in cash. But then who's to say this market's not going to rally back to all-time highs? Just like it did after the pandemic. You know, that was a really nice example of something which on the face of it was completely irrational. Obviously, when you look back on it and think, well, people weren't going out, they had more time, they had more cash, obviously it would create a market rally. But beforehand, I don't think many people saw that. So there was a YouTuber who I follow, um, his name's Roman, and he called the top of the market perfectly and sold all his stocks just before the pandemic because he thought valuations are high and we're in for some trouble. And then the market did crash and he was celebrating. But unfortunately, he kept his money out of the market as it rallied back to new all-time highs. You know, as we've said before, to do market timing, you've got to call the top and the bottom. That is doubly hard. Yeah, absolutely. I think the core portfolio, certainly now what I'm trying to do is just keep it in equity and just keep it simple. Yeah, same. So that's what I've been doing over the past year. You know, I've been drip feeding back into markets. I actually looked at it. I actually looked at how well I've done and I'd have actually been better off just putting the whole lot in on day one. We'll have to see how much lower markets go. But you told me two thirds of the time, just going lump sum straight away outperforms. Oh, I know that. I know that. But for me, it's fear, right? I'm scared of losing money. So that's why, you know, as a cautious person, for me, that drip feeding made sense. But trying to time these things is very difficult. You can do certain things. For example, if you look at valuations, there are some studies that show that if you put more in when valuations are low, that generates higher returns long term. Yeah, I think that's just the luck of when you're born, though, because we all start investing from our paychecks, hopefully, when we start earning. And we're kind of natural drip feeders into market anyway. So it's not like we can really time the market. That's true. You know, for most of your life, you don't make those choices. If you do have a lump sum, then you do have a little bit of leeway in terms of when you can allocate. But otherwise, you're right. We're just natural drip feeders. And I think you just want to get into the market as early as possible and keep in the market, keep adding to your portfolio as you earn. Like you're always going to be scared of news, right? There's always going to be something bad on the horizon, something terrible is happening. We've just elected a ridiculous politician, and I'm talking in a general sense here. And so there's always going to be something scary. 
But you can't just keep waiting and waiting. Like if you get to 50 or 60 and you're about to retire and you're still waiting, like you can't fatten the pig on market day. You're not going to have enough money to retire. (laughs) And it is a kind of obvious thing, isn't it? You just put as much as you can in and kind of hope for the best and just be optimistic about the outcomes. And I guess to wrap it up, if you step back and just think about the market in two slugs, so you've got the passive slug, which is just tracking the market, and then you've got all the active participants, your hedge funds, your retail traders, and everyone in between who's betting on different stocks and different timing strategies. The market is made up of those two things. And it's kind of a mathematical fact, isn't it, that you can't outperform in aggregate in that active section, right? Yeah, because the active managers have so much money to invest that they effectively are the market. And I think it was William Sharp that first pointed out that by definition, once you subtract fees, then in aggregate, active managers can't outperform. They will just reproduce the market. Well, they have to. That's what the market is. Exactly. Passive. We're just tracking the aggregate performance of all those active managers. For every winner, there's a loser. So the question is, can you identify the winners consistently? And are they consistent winners? And that's the fundamental problem. And all the data shows that they aren't consistent winners, right? Yeah, exactly. Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. It would be great if you could leave us a quick rating or review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership, courses, and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pensioncraft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.